Arms and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. It's your brother Mustafa Briggs here with the Sacred Footsteps podcast. And in this episode, alhamdulillah, we have a very, very special episode. Um, so I'm joined by someone I like to call my elder brother, a mentor, a friend, a role model, alhamdulillah, Professor Rudolf Ware III, who is a historian of West Africa at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So he, form, he formerly taught at the University of Michigan and before that the Northwestern University. And he received his PhD in history in 2004 from the University of Pennsylvania. And he's mostly known for his amazing, amazing book, which I used as a reference for my um, uh, bachelor's degree dissertation, The Walking Quran, Islamic Education, Embodied Knowledge and History in West Africa. He also has another publication called Jihad of the Pen, Sufi Thought in West Africa, which is co-written with Zachary Wright and Amir Said. And he has a new book coming out, which um, he will tell us about, inshallah, in this uh, interview. Well, this is going to be an interview slash conversation. We're going to go back and forth because um, we're talking about a subject that, mashallah, I have a lot of passion for. If you know me and you know who I am, then you know that this is, mashallah, my favorite subject. And alhamdulillah, I'm with one of my favorite people discussing it. So, you know, inshallah, it will be, a, uh, it will be a, an amazing time for everyone involved. So I'll pass it over to Professor Ware. Inshallah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah wa ta'ala barakatuh. Good to see you again, Mustafa. Hope, uh, hope you're doing well. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the, today's conversation, inshallah. Inshallah. Now, always, always good when I see you, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So, the subject of today's podcast, I think, is very pertinent to what is happening in the world at the moment and an undiscovered or unappreciated um, side of Islamic legacy is models of liberation in West African Islam. And the reason why I've chosen this subject is because I want us to discuss the history of Islam in West Africa, the unique manifestation of Islam in West Africa, and how that can be relevant for our experience today, not just as Muslims of African descent, but as Muslims living in the West and just Muslims in general. Because, you know, Allah tells us, uh, He made us different tribes and nations in order for us to know each other. And with the ta'aruf, that's an intimate knowledge and an intimate knowledge that breeds, you know, ma'rifah, that breeds experiential knowledge. So um, my first question, I would say, would be talk to us a bit about the spread of Islam in West Africa, because I feel like from what I've studied, Islam in West Africa spread in a very, very unique way. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about the spread of Islam in Africa. We can't forget to mention the Jahanke system, the scholarly lineages, and how Islam was spread. Because when we think of the Middle East and many other places, Islam usually was spread through conquest. First, we mm -hmm. had the Fukuhat in the time of the Khulafa Rashidin mm -hmm. and the Umayyad and the Abbasid. You know, it was a thing of conquering what today they would probably call 
colonization of such or Arabization. Whereas Islam is very unique in Af- in West Africa because, and you know, I'm sure you're going to bring the um, the facts and figures that I saw in <laughs> in in the walking Quran and others. But Africa is a majority Muslim continent. It's the only majority Muslim continent. And especially in sub-Saharan Africa, in black Africa, we see that it was never ruled or colonized by Arabs. It was not a part of the wider, you know, Middle Eastern Islamic empire, although they did have their own Islamic empires that came about afterwards. But yet Islam is such a strong part of the... And, it, and it's something where the culture of the West Africans or sub-Saharan Africans never became Arabized. Yeah. They didn't assimilate into being Arab. They didn't pick up the Arabic language as their main language. They kept their languages, they kept their cultures, they kept their traditions, but yet they're still very, very Muslim and have reached a high level of Islamic scholarship. So I wanted to ask you, when did Islam enter the region? How did it enter the region? And how did it spread in the region? Alhamdulillah. It's a beautiful, beautiful set of questions. Um, And so I'll, I'll say this and then I want to go back for one thing before I fully answer the question. Like the, the, the imprint of the way in which Islam spread in sub-Saharan Africa is still present today, right? Like first impressions matter, <laughs> you know, the way that a thing arrives in a place, you know, does a lot to structure what it will eventually become. And because Islam comes peacefully to sub-Saharan Africa without any external conquest, and it's not imposed by um, state forces or military forces, um, it is very much a bottom-up um, grassroots grassroots movement rather than something that is imposed from the top. And for that reason, like still to this day, when you study uh, Islamic movements in West Africa, they have that organic, close to the ground um, feel that they they then blossom into something else. Um, and they you know have roots that are deep in the ground and reach upwards rather than being imposed you know from the top down and therefore penetrating the soil shallowly. Um, so that's that's you know one kind of you know symbolic way of representing one of the principal lessons that we can learn is that we've been given an opportunity to spread this religion peacefully through teaching, through spiritual work, through proselytizing and rooting it in the ground of the of our societies so that it grows. Um, because as as the great um, you know uh, the, the great West African scholar um, you know our Imam and friend you know Sheikh Tajani Sise uh, puts it um, when commenting on. Uh, uh, Surah Baqarah, um, verse 256, right? Like, fiddin, there is no compulsion in religion. He says, look, when you compel somebody to, um, uh, to believe something, you don't gain a believer, you gain a hypocrite. Mm. <laughs> um, so, and anything that is forced and imposed um, is a belief that, you know, may at some point enter the heart, but it certainly isn't one that germinates there. It certainly isn't one that starts there. Um, And so, you know, we have an opportunity to follow in the footsteps of those West African ancestors um, in creating uh, an Islam that is focused on teaching, that is focused on, you know, um, proselytizing at the grassroots. So that's one, and I'll come back to the, to the history of that in just a moment. But I want to return to the very first thing, um, you know, that, that you said, because you were, you know, citing Quran. 
Um, and like, it's important, like why we study these examples in the first place. Like we don't just study these examples because they're our ancestors because we happen to be black people. Um, and it's also not just that we, it is that we study, you know, um, one another's history so that we know each other, but the Quran actually gives us an explanation of why you study the past in the first place. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it comes in Surah Al-Hud. Um, when uh, God explains to the prophet, he says, indeed, all that we relate to you in the tales of the previous prophets, with it, we fortify your heart. <laughs> so the, pur- the purpose of studying the greats of the past is that you, t- you get inspired by their example and the way that they carried forth this word into the world. And it fortifies your heart with the knowledge that it can be done. And also you take inspiration in the courage that they showed, the, pa- the patient perseverance that they showed. You, you uh, infer lessons from it. So like that, that to me is like the key of studying this history. It's the key of studying all history. Um, and so, so with respect to, to your initial question, yeah, there is no... Um, Sub, there's no conquest external, um, uh, external conquest of sub-Saharan Africa. Instead, what happens is that first uh, merchants um, who are working in uh, trade routes that predated Islam, right? Because West Africa is trading with North Africa um, in the Roman period extensively. Um, but when Islam comes, uh, Muslim merchants start coming across trans-Saharan uh, trade routes for gold. Um, and for salt and for other goods that were common in that time, and they started to bring Islam with them. And once they opened those trade routes, scholars started to fall in behind them. And so those two groups, merchants and scholars, really start to kind of leave an imprint on West African society early. But what happens is is that within West African society, um, social groups that match those two social groups develop very early. There are already West African merchants that are moving goods all over West Africa, cola nuts, um, forest products to the savannah, savannah product, products to the forest, um, putting goods on canoes, you know, in spots that are uh, like Timbuktu and moving them down the river to spots like Jene. There's dense trade already going on. So um, merchants are amongst the first people to adopt Islam because it uh, they're exposed to it through their trade networks and it's also good for business. Later, indigenous families start to specialize not just in having Islam as an identity, but in teaching the religion as the basis of their activities. And that's the formation of those clerical families, which comes, you know, very, very early um, in the history of Islam in West Africa. And they really become the principal agents for spreading Islam amongst West African populations. Um, the earliest ones that we can document go back to the Jahanke tradition, but actually also in the area of, um, of uh, Lake Chad um, in Kanambornu, probably in the 8th and 9th century, there are clerical families developing there. If you look into the early history, for example, of proselytizing in what's now northern Nigeria, it's actually coming from both sides. <laughs> it's coming. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a black uh, Central African tradition from the Lake Chad region and a Jahanke tradition coming from the kind of bend of the Niger River that are meeting in places like northern Nigeria. Um, and there's an early developing Fulani tradition. Um, within a century or two, Wolof speakers are, are developing their own clerical lineages. So Ninke are probably uh, the first to do so, then Mandingo. Um, so you have um, these little 
cradles of, uh, you know, Islamic teaching, they get rooted in West African societies themselves. Um, and they're not being sponsored by states. They're not coming armed with guns. They're coming armed with books. <laughs> they're coming armed with uh, tablets. They're coming armed with literacy. They're coming armed with an idea that the best way to draw people to Islam is not to try to um, compel them but to rather embody a beautiful example so that these people will wonder, wait, what is this moral code that you say you live by all about? Inshallah. And um, in speaking about them coming with books and them not being state-sponsored and them not having any political affiliations, I wanted to ask what is the relationship between... So, okay, this is one question, but it's three questions. Okay. What are the books being studied and what's the level of scholarship being developed and spread by these clerical families? Is it equivalent to what we see happening in Yemen and in Syria and in northern, northern Africa? Is it the same level or is it, you know... Islam Noir, is it like? Okay, so we'll start, let's start, let's start with that one. That's a great question. And you can bracket the other two and we'll knock those down as we, as we come in. Um, the way that I'll answer that question is with a specific historical example, okay? Um, and that is the state of affairs in Mali, um, the empire of Mali in the 14th and 15th centuries, okay? So people might have heard of Mansa Musa, who, you know, is probably the wealthiest man to ever live, or at least a lot of, uh, you know, economic journals, you know, call me up for interviews asking me about him so that they can name him the, the wealthiest person that ever lived. But one of the things that people don't know about him is that he, uh, in de- he controlled the gold trade, had tremendous wealth, but he invested that in um, scholarship, in Uh, Imperial West Africa, the building of schools, the building of mosques, um, investment in libraries and manuscripts. So that what happened in the 1330s, 1340s, 1350s is that West Africa became a global center for Islamic scholarship. Um, There were, you know, Shurafa from Mecca and Medina, from Baghdad, from South Asia, from what's now the Indian subcontinent, that traveled all the way to Timbuktu to study with jet black West African scholars because they were understood, first of all, to be the best teachers of Maliki fiqh on the planet, one, in addition to being extremely learned in all of the disciplines. And I'll just give you one example so that this doesn't sound made up. A person called Moribo Muhammad al Kabri, okay, who is mentioned in the Tariq al-Sudan, and also in other contemporary um, texts, historical texts about um, the imperial age in West Africa. He's mentioned as um, a, a, a saint that uh, um, was capable of, of miracles, but his, he's also, the books that he taught are, uh, are enumerated. Um, and it's said that, that he would have 60 to 70 students at a time learning all of the advanced treaties in Maliki Fiqh in addition to the other um, texts. So in his instance, we have uh, documented instances of Shorafa leaving North Africa um, and coming to, to study with him and then composing praise poetry to say, will there ever be another one like him? Oh, Arabs, will we ever produce the like of him? <laughs> uh, those words were written by Sidi Yahya at Tadalisi, who himself was, was underst- understood to be a, a Sharif. Um, documented instances of people leaving the holy cities um, in order to come to West Africa to study with people like Moribo Muhammad al-Kabri. And, and this is also just another, since we're dropping like, you know, sneak previews of, of works to drop. Um, I've actually been able to find um, 
a manuscript of a surviving book written by Modibo Muhammad al-Kabari, um, probably from the 14 teens, and we're working on an annotated translation um, of that text now. Um, so this was, this was not uh, some second or third rate scholarly tradition. It was the pinnacle of the scholarly tradition because it had the, 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 the state patronage at that point in time, not state control, but state patronage of one of the most powerful and wealthy men of all time who gave autonomy to clerical lineages to do what they wanted. They ruled within their own domains. The state didn't interfere, but the state did see a benefit in um, providing resources, access to books, access to um, to, to, to schools, um, and that led to you know a now all but forgotten efflorescence of Black African scholarship in Islam. And what I find amazing, what I find interesting is that, and we'll go into this because this ties into the next question, is that you mentioned that the scholarly clerical families were experts in Maliki, masters of the Quran masters of the Islamic sciences, people who had reached the pinnacle in scholarship. And this was by the 13th century, meaning for about two centuries previous or more, they were already firmly grounded in knowledge and established in what they were doing. I mean, I heard, for example, the Jahanke tradition is on three major books, the Tafsir of Jalaluddin Suyuti, mm. uh, and the Shifa of Qadi Iyad, and the Muwata of Imam Malik. Those are like the primary texts. Well, can, can I can I say something about that? Because that 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 is a claim that is is often made. Um, yeah. However, the the Tafsir of Suyuti is actually too late to be a foundational text for the Jahanke. Yeah. Um, the Jahanke are specializing in Quranic exegesis at least four hundred years before Suyuti is born. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the 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 Tafsir of Jalalain becomes the foundational tafsir text that they use the, um, as the basis of the oral teaching. Um, but uh, just, just to be clear, um, you know, if you go 500 years back before that, um, the, the, um, uh, the Muwata of Imam Malik is being used, um, and the, the Shifa al-Qali Iyad is also about maybe three centuries earlier than, than, than Sayyuti. So it's a, it's a tradition that is, um, you know, focused on core text and changes, you know, the texts that are, you know, uh, the best ones to teach, um, you know, along the way. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. No, that's, that was important to, to highlight. And um, I wanted to then now ask you the relationship between these scholarly families and the rulers and the empires. So what was the social setup of West Africa pre-colonization and what was the political setup and how did they interact? Yeah. Because you know, within the Islamic tradition, there's always been, I would say after the time of the Khulafa Rashidin, there's always been a complicated relationship between the ulama and the umara, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the scholars and the rulers. Usually they try and control the religion, the way it's being taught and the way it's being spread. Usually, um, you know, scholars, I mean, we all know that Imam Malik, uh, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, etc. all of the great scholars, most of them had had problems with their rulers. They were government. persecuted, yeah. And so, and the Shurafa, obviously, which is why we have so many of them in, in Africa, because they were running away from in the Middle East, you know? Uh, so yeah. with that, what was the relationship? Because I remember I had a conversation with you once and you said something that was extremely important in the spread of Islam in West Africa and the way that that is relevant to how we can modify Islam in the West is that it was independent 
of the political sphere. Even though it influenced the political sphere, it was there before the empires and the kingdoms, and it's still there now after. Yeah. And we'll lead on into the final where I want to take the conversation. We'll talk about before colonization, as you said, in the early times. What was the relationship between these scholarly clerical families and the rulers? Because we see, for example, the, 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 the Ghana Empire was ruling at a time where there were non-Muslim kings that had ulema working with them, living within yep. their boundaries. Yep. Well, mosques, as um, uh, Al-Umari says when he talks about his visit to the Ghana Empire, in the 12th century, he says, you know, the king isn't Muslim, but there's the capital city with 12 masjids. One of exactly. And then the Mali Empire, the kings are Muslim. What's their relationship with scholars and Songhai, etc., etc.? Man, it's a it's a beautiful question and you know beautifully detailed question. And and two things you know jump to mind immediately, right? Like so, for the modern Muslim, um, you know. A lot of people repeat this saying, like, Islam din wa dawla, right? Um, <laughs> Islam is, is religion and, you know, politics or, you know, however you want to translate the, the, the term. And people act like that that's, a, that that's in the Quran someplace. Um, or they act like it's in Hadith someplace, but it's not. It's actually like a nationalist aphorism that's developed, you know, in the Middle East, you know, in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, it's not, you know, the, the original, you know, model. The, the model as it existed in West Africa was, for lack of a better term, it was the separation of church and state to protect the church from the state. See, in, in Western societies, we've evolved separation of church and state in order to protect the state from the church. In West Africa, it evolved in the opposite direction. It evolved as a way of protecting um, clerical autonomy so that they could stand in a position of autonomous ethical critique of political authorities. Mm. They're meant to be the ones that are standing outside of power um, and telling rulers that this exceeds the bounds. Mm -hmm. This, there's a better way of doing this. And you can't do that when you are a part of the thing that you are meant to criticize. Because people tend to reason with their material interests at stake when they are part of political institutions in an explicit way. They craft rulings and decisions and uh, fatawa that justify or rubber stamp any impositions that kings would like to impose. So there is a long tradition in West Africa of preserving clerical autonomy and of, yes, providing occasional services to political authorities, but always being wary of getting pulled into political, um, you know, uh, conflicts. The Jahanke are, are, are an excellent example of this. You know, anytime, you know, uh, political strife, you know, um, erupted, people were always trying to draw them in to provide, you know, religious opinions on this matter or the other. And that's when Jahanke said, oh, time to go. <laughs> like, and they, they would just prefer migration in every instance. Every time there was fitna, they'd just get up and go, um, be, rather than have their religion compromised um, by being asked to make decisions on opposite sides of affairs involving Muslims. Mm. So the, the, the short version is that um, pious distance from power mm -hmm. was the basic model 
in West Africa um, in the pre-colonial um, period. And when kings were thought of as being just and as people that took counsel, then scholars were more willing um, to, to work with them and in league with them. So that's why people like Mansa Musa were successful and well-remembered, um, right? Um, and when when kings were tyrants and abusive, the only people that could usually be counted on to speak up against them were, cl- were scholars, were clerics. That was their job. Um, and that, that ended up really um, having significant effects later once the, the Atlantic slave trade arises, right, in West Africa. Because over the course of time, um, because clerical communities are thought of as being autonomous spaces where kings um, are not allowed to exert their authority, over the course of time, like, um, and once uh, kings start to get caught up in worldly matters that they shouldn't be involved in, um, clerical you know, communities become even more important. They really become sites of organizing radical resistance to the injustices of the world. And we should be thinking about this, right, in terms of our model. Like, we need to be thinking about how we, we stay distant from... Um, overtly political aspirations. It's not that Muslims shouldn't be involved in politics. Muslims should be involved in politics and Muslims should be involved in politics as Muslims. But religious authorities should not be pursuing political authority. Because what happens over and over again, and this happens across West African history, we can talk about this in more detail, is that when the religious authorities become the political authorities, then who's going to provide the autonomous ethical critique of the political authorities? You started out with good religion and bad politics, but oftentimes when the scholars become the kings, you end up with bad religion and bad politics. That's so important. And you touched on something that was going to be my next question, which is the transatlantic slave trade. But before we go there, I want to talk about an accusation that's always being brought up when speaking about the history of Islam in West Africa. And the way your face is looking, you know where I'm going with this, is uh, the Arab slave trade. So there's two questions I have here. I want to know, because I was reading up about the Jahanke tradition and um, there was a figure within that tradition called um, Salim Suare, I believe his name. Yep, that's right. His model was the model that they say is how Islam spread in West Africa. It was the model for West African scholarship, um, which differed with the North African model. So we see, for example, in North Africa, jihad was a main focus of people in spreading the religion. And the rulings, according to the scholars of Maliki Fiqh, I mean, even if we study the Risala, we see there's a whole chapter on the rulings for jihad, how to go about giving a jihad. And what most scholars say, Orientalist scholars um, specifically, focus on is the fact that Islam was spread through jihad, as in the Muslims will then say, okay, we're going to wage jihad on this non-Muslim state. We'll invite them to Islam for three days. If they don't accept, we ask them to pay the jizya if they're Ahlul Kitab. If they're not, Islam or we kill you, kind of kind of vibe, basically. That's how they always present it. And so they say through that then, it was a form of colonization and then also slave, the door for slavery was open because the people that resisted them were then enslaved and sold, etc. And that's how Islam spread. Whereas when we see the Salim Suare model, it's a model that doesn't engage with jihad at all and doesn't 
oppose non-Muslims and even pagans, people who are considered pagans, people who are considered polytheists, as being the political authorities and Muslims living under them, which is something that their North African counterparts did not accept. So in the North where we see, they say, you know, no non-Muslims should be living under, no Muslims should be living under the rule of non-Muslims, and it's an obligation to wage jihad and replace them with Muslim leaders. In West Africa, we see this kind of collaboration between the scholarly families who are living within communities, setting up their communities under non-Muslim kings and working with them. So we see, for example, uh, Al-Bakri says, or Al-Umari, I forgot his name, um, says when he visits the Ghana empire that the king isn't Muslim, but most of the ministers in his government are Muslim and his capital city has 12 masjids in a Muslim section. And in the non-Muslim section where the king lives, he has within his palace a masjid. So I wanted to ask, how was that model and how did they justify it scholarly, like in a scholarly way, how did they justify um, not waging jihad? And what was, their, what was their scholarly basis for that? And then we'll move into as well the myth of the Arab slave trade and yeah, what you have to say about that as well. There's so, there's so much to say and what you've said is so rich. I mean, the, so the first uh, thing to remember is that when I talk about scholars like um, Moribo Mohamed Al-Kabari and his teaching of Maliki Fiqh, that's the teaching that people are leaving North African and Middle Eastern societies to come to West Africa to get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're getting um, a orientation in Maliki Fiqh that uses the exact same sources, but instead of arriving at warlike conclusions that justify the enslavement of everybody that doesn't believe like them, they are getting arguments that are rooted in, in uh, foundational texts that make this basic argument, that the only system of governance that Muslims can't live under is no system of governance at all. <laughs> that chaos is the thing that prevents the, the practice of religion because it's just power versus power and people shed one another's blood. But that any political authority that provides the circumstances for the practice of the religion, the free practice of the religion, is a good thing, <laughs> right? Because the, uh, the goal is to keep people out of the fire and to raise people's ranks in paradise, the, 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 the jihad of the sword was a contingent device used by the prophet himself because he had authorization to do so. Some prophets pick up the sword, some prophets never pick up the sword, but they all have the same mission, which is to raise high the word of God. Mm-hmm. So the, the jihadke position and the overall predominant position in West Africa can be summarized in in these following points. The first is is that unbelief is a result of jahal, ignorance, not evil. Mm. People can't believe when they don't know anything about a religion. Second, it's God's will that some people remain in jahiliyyah longer than others. Mm. (laughs) This is obvious. Third, there is no compulsion in religion. Therefore, conversion occurs in God's time on his schedule. And because because, um, jihad produces um, people that testify with the tongue but don't believe it with their heart, it's not an acceptable means for conversion. It's legitimate 
only in self-defense to protect the survival of the Muslim community. Muslims may support non-Muslim rule as long as they are allowed to practice their faith freely. And when they're prevented from practicing their faith freely, they should get up and go. They should, but they should try to stay um, when they can, when they're allowed to practice their faith, because by presenting an example of righteousness, knowledge, and piety, they create an, um, an example to be emulated within the society, and that becomes the vehicle for the spread of Islam. And lastly, you center scholarship at the heart of your communities so that even if you're surrounded by people that believe other than you, you are going to be well-founded in your deen. Those seven principles is how you changed sub-Saharan Africa from a place with 0% Muslims to the only majority Muslim context in the world. So places now that when you go through Niger, northern Nigeria, Senegal, Mali, all the way through to Somalia, 92, 94, 96, 98% Muslim, without shedding any blood. If we want to spread, look, if we want to spread Islam in the West, we better recognize that that has to be the model that we're going to apply. You know, these people that think that they're going to establish some corrupt caliphate and take down, you know, these imperial powers are out of their minds. Uh, look, what comes to mind, to be honest, is an outcast lyric, okay? A song lyric from the group Outcast. And, and the, the line is, niggas ranting and raving about gats. They made them gats. They got some stuff that'll blow out your backs. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, if you want to make this a matter of guns, they got bigger guns than you. Mm-hmm. But this can be done without shedding so much as a single drop of blood. And if you want proof, check on my ancestors. Uh And that's where we're going to finish the conversation. But before we get to that part of the conversation, we've spoken about, alhamdulillah, the entrance of Islam into West Africa through the scholars and the merchants. We've spoken about the spread of Islam in West Africa independent of political um, control through scholarship, where the jihad of the sword, which is what we see usually in the north, is replaced with jihad of the pen, sub-Sahara. In terms of implanting yourself in in a community, benefiting the community, removing ignorance within the community, and calling to Islam in the best way through an example of practicing. That's exactly practicing. Beautifully summarized. Beautifully summarized. That's exactly right. So now we see that peacefully Muslims have been living in West Africa for about 700 years, 800 years, and then a new race arrives, a new people arrive, a new ideology arrives on the shores of West Africa, which is the European, or which are the European colonizers. And the transatlantic slave trade starts to happen. Yeah. And it vastly affects, I mean, people downplay the numbers and the statistics, but a vast number of the people taken, kidnapped, and sold into slavery from West Africa were actually part of these Muslim communities. Absolutely. And evidence, um, as you know, we've discussed in, uh, I've discussed it in um, before Malcolm's History of Islam in the Americas, we see scholars, we see highly educated West African Muslims being taken and enslaved in, 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 in the Caribbean and in 
North America and in South America, we see the first revolts happening, happening from West African Muslims from the Senegambia region, which led to the Haitian Revolution, the Bahia revolts, the Mali revolts in Bahia in Brazil, etc. All of these communities are being affected. So what is the reaction of the scholars on the continent and the Muslim communities on the continent to the transatlantic slave trade? And then also explain to us a bit about what is this so-called Arab slave trade, because whenever you talk about the transatlantic slave trade, people always like to say, yeah, well, you know, the Arab slave trade was much bigger. There were many more people taken. The Muslims were selling people in slavery. Mansa Musa was a slave trader. You hear all of these things. So um, Arab slave trade and transatlantic slave trade, and what are the reactions? Yeah. And I want to ask specifically if you can touch on Abdul Qadir Khan, you can touch on Sheikh Ahmed Bamba because many people don't know Sheikh Ahmed Bamba had a younger sister, Fatima Tumbake, yep. who had the same father as him, and she was kidnapped and sold That's into right. slavery. That's right. I, I talked about it in a talk the other day, and I, I still I, I don't think people even registered that. Yeah. So, so please explain to us the the, the Arab slave trade and the Atlantic slave trade, and okay. the reaction of the scholars of West Africa to both. Okay. So, so the first thing is, is the, the Arab slave trade as a construct. Let's just take a second on that. Um, we call the Atlantic slave trade the Atlantic slave trade um, for one reason, which is that we don't want to call it what it is, which is the Euro-American slave trade. Okay. We never put European or American next to the term slave trade <laughs> because it's a way of denying the accountability for the people that operated the system. But people attach this moniker Arab slave trade to um, other slave trades because the goal is actually to try to get a critique of um, Muslim societies um, to stick um, and that, that idea is that, well, whatever was done in the Atlantic slave trade, the Arabs did worse, okay? Um, this, this idea has been perpetuated in academic scholarship for 100 years. When the first efforts to count the volume of the Atlantic slave trade in 1968 by Philip Curtin produced a count of 9 million, within three years, um, some historian produced an account that said that the Arab slave trade was 10 million. No sources, <laughs> no basis for the claim, no even ability to develop a basis for the claim. And by the way, that not number of 9 million by Philip Curtin was later revised upward to 10, 10 and a half, then 11, now 12 and three quarters. The truth is, is that every time somebody does another count of the Atlantic slave trade, the numbers get higher. When I give estimates, I base it on what's documented currently, which is about 12 and three quarters million. But I know that every time the count has been done for the last 40 years, the numbers increased. So I usually say between 13 and 20 million uh, Africans were brought out of sub-Saharan Africa and God knows best. Now that is based on counting literally the manifest of every single slave ship that people have been able to find. That's how you get to that 12.75 million number. Do you know what passes for evidence in the estimate of the so-called size of the, the Arab slave trade? Mm -mm. No documentation. Wild speculation. Um, one piece of evidence that, that was used as the basis for suggesting that um, 
thousands of slaves were brought from uh, the Sudan to, uh, no, excuse me, from Ethiopia to um, Arabian Peninsula in the 19th century was literally based on a dinner conversation that a priest heard when he was visiting the king of Ethiopia. Um, so <laughs> like that was literally the basis of it, is that somebody made an offhand comment that there were 100 slaves a year sold here. So a historian literally just multiplied that by factor of X in order to produce of this huge outflow of people. The fact of the matter is, is that the so-called Arab slave trade from sub-Saharan Africa is a very recent phenomenon that is coterminous with the Atlantic slave trade. It rises at the same time that the Atlantic slave trade does. There are there there is a slave trade and there is slavery in Muslim societies before that. But in places like North Africa, slaves come from all over the world. Enslaved people come from all over the world, and black people are a minority in the slave community in places like Egypt, um, even in places like Algeria, um, Morocco to a lesser extent, just because the there, there are slaves that are being purchased from across the Sahara Desert, but nobody's raiding sub-Saharan Africa for slaves at that point in time. Um, there, are a, there are a small part of a much larger set of economic activities. Um, never in human history, anywhere, has the trade in human beings approached the scale that it takes on in the Atlantic slave, slave trade. And what happens in the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th century in Muslim societies with the emergence of a racialized capitalist slave trade that produces the same kinds of racist ideas that we experience in the West, that is actually part of the rise of the Atlantic slave trade. Oftentimes, and this you can document this in Mauritania, uh, Moorish tribes get involved in raiding for slaves to sell them to Europeans. And then they start increasingly using them in their own Saharan oases. Then in the 19th century, when Europeans stopped coming to the coast of Africa to buy slaves because they've now abolished the international trade, those slaves get sent to North Africa, to Morocco and Algeria in huge numbers. So you have racist ideas emerging in those societies in the 19th century um, that are actually first nurtured by the slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade, the Euro-American slave trade. And then because the Euro-American slave trade is cut off, slavery becomes much more intense in every part of Africa and in every part of the Muslim world. And because people only remember the last thing they see, <laughs> the 19th century serves as the model for race relations in Muslim societies, and people project that back to the dawn of Islam as though this was part and parcel of an Islamic approach to slavery on the one hand and black people on the other. So, so yeah, th so that's only part one of your question. The other part is, so then what was the clerical response to this? Well, the, the clerics had been critics of enslavement before the Atlantic slave trade arose, many of them. There's, there's documented instances of uh, North African scholars, West African scholars, and especially scholars in Timbuktu, which is this kind of bridge between both places, um, mm -hmm. writing all kinds of opinions about how the basic condition of humanity is freedom exempt from the conditions of slavery, and only a legally constituted jihad was capable of abrogating that original state of freedom. And it had always been an opinion of a minority of Muslim legal scholars that only the prophet himself or someone that he deputized had the authority to wage that jihad anyway. So there are no vehicles for um, adding new slaves to a society. So slavery should have ended.
That had always been a position. But when West African scholars now get confronted with the largest trade in human beings that the world has ever known, they become increasingly radical in their argumentation against it. Um, and they start to develop arguments that, in fact, the, this is the, the, the phrasing of one. They, they say, how can it be that the testification of faith with prevents one from punishment and humiliation in the afterlife does not prevent one from the torment and humiliation of enslavement in this life? In other words, if anybody proclaims to be a believer, then they are exempt from enslavement. Mm -hmm. And this leads to, you know, Abdul Qadir Khan that you mentioned before, when the slave trade is at its absolute height, leading an anti-slavery abolition movement that ends the institution of slavery in the Senegal River Valley, that sets free any person that will recite a single verse of the Quran. Because it was his belief that not even a single verse of God's book should ever be held in bondage. And he said in the oral tradition, they say that he said that the Muslim that should be protected from the indignities of enslavement is the one that says, La ilaha illallah, even if he pronounces it, Ra iraha irra ra. The idea was that we're going to use this. Um, our understanding of Islamic law as shielding from enslavement, to use that to protect anyone who will even proclaim it. Mm -hmm. So so the question that I ask for our time, right? Are we using sound understandings of Islamic law to extend protections to women, to extend protections to abused and marginalized communities? Or are we, in our time, the equivalent of those conservative scholars that are defending inherited legal positions on slavery without actually going into what the Sunnah of the Prophet himself was? Or why Umar ibn al-Khattab would set free the captives um, that were praying in the expeditions against the Persians? Not asking the question why the Messenger of God freed anyone that he had ever owned before he died. Are we going back and asking those questions so that we can be agents for liberation and justice and abolition in our time? And you know, mashallah, mashallah, that's an amazing, that's an amazing, um, I'm kind of, yeah, mashallah. I remember even um, hearing Sheikh Ahmed Bamba once was brought a slave as a gift from somebody. That's right. At the person and the person, he said, "What's this?" The person said, "Oh, this is your slave." And then he said, "Ah, what did he say? What was it?" He, 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 said, he, he said, "He said, he said, he said, you own this man." <laughs> and he said, "He said, well, ma- mama, mom." He said, "Yeah, I own him." <laughs> and and Bamba said to him, "Soko mome, yama mom, dah mag mom, nyo boko borom." He said, "If if you own him." then you own me because he and I have the same master. And he pointed his finger to the heavens. Which leads me to my final kind of the, the penultimate section of this. Inshallah. We having fun though. So we can go as long as we want to. It's all good. So we spoke about, mashallah, the fact that the Arab slave trade isn't really based on, the myth of the Arab slave trade isn't really based on solid evidence, especially no. with the numbers. 
And then we focused on the fact that the major slave trade we see amongst the Arab world coincides with the Euro-American slave trade. That's right. And that people were raiding African slave, people were raiding African nations to enslave people in order to sell them to Europeans. And, you know, that's something that even we have in, in oral tradition in Senegal. There was the other day I was listening to a song, Kinelam. Uh, mm-hmm. She was singing somebody that came from Walo. Walo is, as we know, in the north of Senegal. And then she was talking about Talata in there, which yep. is, uh, you know, the, 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 the Tuesday when the Mauritanians or a group of Mauritanian people came to raid the raid St. Louis and the women locked themselves in a hut and set the hut set on themselves fire. on fire. It happened. It actually happened. It happened on multiple occasions. Um, mm-hmm. When, when Abdul Qadir Khan um, was fighting against the principal slave trading King of his time, which was the Damal of Kajor in 1796, mm-hmm. um, Abdul Qadir Khan had not lost a military battle in 20 years. So between 1776 and 1796, he hadn't lost the battle. So um, in addition to the 30,000 soldiers that marched with him from Futatoro um, across the, the Ferlo to, to, um, to uh, Kajor, there were a number of women and children that came just to watch the battles because they didn't have any fear. Um, uh, and when he lost that first battle that he lost and was himself taken captive and many of his principal lieutenants were sold into slavery. And by the way, the book that I'm writing now, I've been able to track some of his enslaved lieutenants to slave rebellions in Antigua. Uh, I've been able to track some of his enslaved uh, lieutenants to South Carolina and Georgia. Oh, <laughs> People's heads are going to pop when this thing drops. I'm just going to tell you that right now. <laughs> but, to, but to return to your story is that when, when he was taken prisoner and they lost that battle, the women um, walled themselves into huts and lit them on fire because they knew that enslavement, as every you know, enslaved person you know, in the new world knows, means risk of horrible sexual abuse for women. Horrible mm-hmm. sexual abuse for women. And rather than facing that, they preferred death mm-hmm. um, at that time. Um, so this was, this was a trauma. And like the, the scholars of the age had to be responsible and do something. They couldn't just lean on what their books had said that you already had did because it obviously wasn't meeting the moment because if it had been meeting the moment, then we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. So, yeah. So go, yeah. Leading on to then the next question, the Euro-Asian trade, slave trade goes hand in hand with colonization. Yep. I was uh, watching a documentary about Islam in East Africa and Professor Abdullah Hakim Quick was explaining that many people talk about, for example, the Omani Arab slave trade on the Swahili coast, not knowing that it was the Portuguese that initiated that. They initiated that, that. absolutely. Abandoning what their dean said about slave trade and following the European trend in enslaving Africans, etc., etc., um, and on the West, we see, in the West African coast, we see the same thing. We see people engaging in, well, non-Muslim kings, capturing and selling Muslims to Europeans. We see Europeans coming and raiding and kidnapping and selling them and selling Muslims and non-Muslims. And then this also leads to then the system of colonization. That's right. And what's interesting is that in the case of, and I want to focus on the Senegambian region specifically, because um, well, I mean, we know, alhamdulillah, about Sheikh Usman Danfodio and the Sokota Khilafah, which came to an end, um, not, not, which 
politically came to an end during the British colonial rule. Symbolically, the Sultan was still there and the Emirs were still there, but they were under British protectorate rule mm-hmm. as well. But Islam had already been widespread in northern Nigeria by that time. And That's right. And it decreased its influence. But what is interesting with the case of Senegambia is that the majority of Senegambia was non-Muslim before colonization. I would say there were more non-Muslims in Senegambia region, according to what I know, maybe I'm wrong, than there were Muslims. But during colonization, we see Islam spread rapidly throughout the Senegambia region. So it had a presence of over a thousand years. Um, I remember seeing a letter of Sheikh Ibrahim Nias where he wrote that Islam entered into Senegal in the year 310 Hijri, which is... uh, Mass is off, but you know, yeah, <laughs> Nine, yeah early early tenth century, the nine hundred somewhere thereabouts. Yeah, but we see that Islam starts to spread rapidly during colonization, and we see many scholars such as Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, Sheikh Al Haji Maliksi, Al Haji Abdullahnias, Sheikh Omar Futiutal during the time of colonization. But each one of those four that I mentioned, who I would say are the four major. Um, scholars who established towns and scholarly lineages and were leaders of Islam in that region, each one of them had a completely different attitude and way of dealing with the colonizers. Mm-hmm. So we for example, Sheikh Omar Fututa was a mujahid. He picked up the sword and he fought against the French and he fought against the non-Muslim kings that were collaborating with the French. Then when we come to Sheikh Ahmed Ubamba, we see that he believes in peaceful protest, peaceful... Well, you can explain what he believes in and what he believes in, but we see him being exiled by the French. When it comes to Alaji Maliksi, who's around the exact same time, we see him working with the French. It looks like he's working with them. Yeah, it looks that way. It's not true, but it looks that way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, this, I'm just setting up the question. And then no, I'll you, you, well, you're doing, you're doing good. I like this. Please, I'll just go and finish the question. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm taking it all in. Yeah, Sheikh Omar Futi, we see him fighting the French. Uh, Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, we see him being exiled by the French. Alaji Maliksi, we see him working with the French. His, his, his eldest son, Sidi Ahmed, mm-hmm. died in World War I in service Correct. the French. And he was an imam in the French army as well when he was there. But the Mashallah. Luther was taken by the French. He fought for the French in World War I and he passed away there. And then we see Elijah Abdullahnias not wanting to really get involved. He was a mujahid. He, picked, he puts down his sword and he says, I'm going to leave and go to live in Angale, as they say. <laughs> Gambia, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he focuses on his farming and teaching and then he returns. And then we see his son, Sheikh Al Islam Al Haji Ibrahimnias, at a time when colonization is ending and independence is on the rise. And he's working within the colonized system in the beginning and fighting for liberation and trying to, you know, pan-Africanism, his relationship with Kwame Nkrumah, his relationship with... So, so Brother Mustafa, can I, can I jump in at this point um, and just say, say one thing? Yeah. Because, so and, and, and then I, wanna, and then I'm, I do want to let you finish the question, but what, the question that you asked brings up something else for me that I never get to say that's really crucial that you led me to. Go ahead. So we'll get into the individual cases and we'll talk about imperialism, but, but the diversity of responses that you just mm-hmm. described that were all effective responses, 
that is the key to understanding what the classical curriculum was all about. Mm-hmm. So in our time, we are trying to produce carbon copies of traditional Islam that came before us, okay? But that's not what the classical system of schooling was designed to produce. It was designed to produce people who so thoroughly embodied and understood the tradition that they were capable of improvising the appropriately Islamic response to whatever situation they encountered. And because the in- the situations they encounter are going to be different, the responses that they give are going to be different, and they'll all be correct. The, and the, 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 the Muslim mind state has been so colonized by European forms of logic that we think that if two people arrive at different conclusions in front of the same text, that they're either one of them is wrong and the other's right, or they're both wrong, right? Like the, the Maliki scholars can't be right in both advocating for jihad and suggesting against it. Um, when the, the tradition was actually said that as long as you're firmly rooted in the text and you follow an authentic process, then whatever answer you arrive at is correct. Because there is no way of producing a thick manual, right, that is going to encompass all of the circumstances that even one of the children of Adam would encounter in their own individual lives, much less what we might encounter as a collective species for all of us in our individual lives that tells us how we're supposed to respond to every situation. Therefore, we have to root Islam in our hearts and our limbs so that when we encounter unprecedented circumstances, whatever we produce is Islamic. And that, that's, I think that that's the core argument of my first book, The Walking Quran, that usually gets missed. People think that, that embodiment is about transmitting something in a static way from one generation to the next. It's about producing virtuosos. Who, because they so thoroughly understand and embody the tradition, that they uh, create responses that then a whole society can learn from, understand, follow, and get free. So that was the thing that I wanted to interrupt the question for because it's like it's under the whole question. And I love the question and want to dig into the question. And I want you to finish the question, but like I never get to say that part. <laughs> um, and I really wanted to, 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 yeah. That essentially was the question. So my question was what? <laughs> <laughs> and how do you analyze each person's response? So okay. we see Mahfuti, Mujahid. We see Sheikh Ahmed Bamba. What was his stance and how did he come to that conclusion? Alhaji Malik Sti working seemingly with the French, which, alhamdulillah, was beneficial because we see, for example, in Dakar, due to Alhaji Malik's influence, we see Zawiyas all over the capital city, masjids being built, areas being named Medina, Faz, etc., Avenue Alhaji Malik Sti, etc., which led to the spread of Islam, the spread of Mada, of, of, of Dara's teaching the Quran, the spread of Zawiyas, etc., etc. And then Alaji Abdullah leaving, coming back, and then his son going on to become the giant that we see within the international political sphere. Someone that, you know, he's mm-hmm. a Salum Salum, he's a farmer, he's a Marabu, but he's there with President Gamal Abdel Nasser, yep. he's there yep. with writing Africa for the Africans. He's with the kings of Saudi. He's with all of these different political... He's in China with Chairman Mao and, and Zhao Englai. Yep, yep. How, does that, how does that come about? Yeah, no, and, 
and the underlying question that you led with was, well, you know, under this time when colonization is happening, how come Islam is expanding instead of contracting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although I will say that, that the Senegambian region is predominantly Muslim at the outset of that period. The Senegal and Gambia itself are all predominantly Muslim. The further you get into the south, um, Casamance region, forest regions of Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, those places are, have Muslim minorities, but not Muslim majorities. But for the, for the savannah regions, you know, um, basically, like if you drew a line kind of at Gambia and drew it straight across you know, to, um, to, to Lake Chad, everything above that line is really predominantly Muslim. Um, at that time. Um, but he, part of why they're so successful, and there is something that's, that's in common in all of their responses, which is that the old regimes, because the, the slaving kings um, had been part of establishing slavery in West African society on an unprecedented scale, there were systematic social inequalities in West Africa. Um, and Muslim identity was something that was not openly accessible to a lot of enslaved people, right? They get shunned and treated as less than um, human because the justification for their enslavement had been that they came from a land of unbelief, Mm. okay? So... Now, these people who mostly are growing up only Muslim and in Muslim societies want to have their human dignity acknowledged in those societies. Well, how are you going to have your human dignity acknowledged in a Muslim society? You want to be fully accepted as a believer, just like your brother that claims that he owns you. So what all of them responded to, Elaj Umar Tal, Elaj Maliksi, Ahmed Ubamba, Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas, his father, Elaj Abdullah Nyas, they all responded to a demand to democratize Muslim identity and extend it to the poorest and the meekest. They had different strategies, different tactics, but they were always about reaching out to the people that had been disenfranchised in the society. Elaj Umartal offers freedom to the slaves of his enemies when he goes to war with them. And why is he fighting in the first place with Karta and Segu? He is fighting with them because they are enslaving the people of the Senegal River Valley. His, his, his issue that he has with the Fulani of Messina is rooted in the fact that the Fulani of Messina are claiming that they are in a protectorate with Segu and Karta. Bambara polities. And Elaj Umar says, listen, you can be friends with the non-Muslim kings, but you can't be friends with non-Muslim kings that raid our people for slaves. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and he's setting anybody that will flee from the enemy side free, just like Abdul Qadir Khan had done before him. Elaj Malik C is very misunderstood in this respect. Elaj Malik C had written legal opinions that said that um, the ordinary obligation for a defensive jihad, which is that you are required to fight, this was the ordinary, it's not an uncontestable opinion, but it was the ordinary position, was that you are required to fight a defensive jihad even if you were outnumbered two to one. 
but that if you were outnumbered by a ratio of more than two to one, then you could sue for peace. Okay. His, he had written a legal opinion that said that the difference in the military capacity of the Europeans was such that even though they were fewer in number, they didn't outnumber you two to one. They numbered, outnumbered you a thousand to one because they could kill a thousand of you without one of them dying. <laughs> Because they could shoot with weapons that you wouldn't even be able to see where they were coming from. Now they do it with drones. So you can't fight a jihad against such people for a very simple reason, he said, which is that the Muslim is forbidden from committing suicide. (laughs) You can't go spending your sons on a fruitless cause like that. What's wrong with you? So because he understood that this colonization was going to happen whether you spilled your blood or didn't spill your blood, he instead focused on using the economic apparatus that the new colonial state was building to spread Islam. He sent teachers that were trained in his Zawiya in Tiwawan to all of the towns along the French rail line. The French rail line was just built to extract resources out of the African continent and send it to the coast. But El Ajmalik Si saw an opportunity to use it to extend sound teaching of Tijani Sufism and Quranic sciences into all of the places where the French colonial state was now going and where the children of Adam were inevitably going to go because these were going to become centers for commerce and people go where they can find something to eat. So anybody that wants to accuse Elaj Malik Si of compromising with the colonial authority has no idea of the man's spiritual status, nor of his strategic intelligence. Elaj Abdullah took a blend of both positions. He initially tries, you know, hijra, and then he realizes that, I mean, you've just exchanged one, one colonial authority for, for another. I might as well be back home with my people. Um, and, but in the process, he builds something that actually spans two colonies, which is crucial. Because he, in that, he provides a model for what Sheikh Ibrahim ultimately does, which is Sheikh Ibrahim has to be thinking at some point, well, if my father can build a community that spans two colonies, why can't I build a fighter that spans all of them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, what do you think is motivating him in 1937 to go to Kano? 42. The first trip? He went. He went to Hajj thirty-seven. Met the Emir. Then he went to kind of his first. His first. You no. Know, his first trip. He goes on the humble. No one knows that he's going. Yeah. yeah. Uh, his first trip. He goes on the humble. Nobody knows that he's going. Mm-hmm. The story. The story, as it was told to me in the oral tradition, is that he's he's traveling uh, with just a, just a uh, a handful of people, and he they they hear stories. Um, the story that, that I heard, and you can correct it if it's wrong, is that um, when he starts to sit with the ulama of Kano, they are, and they hear that he's from Senegal, um, they start asking him about the author of this book called Keshef al-Bas um, that is written by a scholar in Senegal that must have lived you know, in the golden age centuries ago, and had they ever heard of any such person? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I've heard of the book because I'm the one that wrote it. <laughs> he didn't live centuries ago. He's me. 
So, uh, and that that was what atta- uh, attracted the attention of the Emir of Kano in the first place. And God knows best, I wasn't there. That's just the story that I've heard. But it's yeah. So it's it's an amazing to, it's amazing to see how the model was spread. So we've spoken about the Arab slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade. We've spoken about colonization and the different responses. We see um, Sheikh Omar resisting. We see Sheikh Ahmed Bamba and Alhaji Malik C and Alhaji Ablanias working within the confines of the colonizers to spread Islam. Each in, different, Malik- each in different ways, but dealing with the fact that what was, was. Bamba's approach was basically to seek spatial separation whenever possible. He sought out areas that the, 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 that that nobody else was really interested in. If you've been to like, you know, Morid, you know, farm communities, like they are, they're all up in the cut. Like they're out in the middle of nowhere and it's hot. Um, Like you really have to be about God's business to be working on one of them farms, you know, in the rainy season. Um, So sorry to interrupt, but yeah, they, they use different approaches, but they all worked with what was. So with Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, his thing was let's stay as far away from them as possible and do our own thing. Whereas Alaji is like, no, let's be all up in their places, in the middle of their cities, and do our thing. Perfect mm. balance, right? Perfect balance. And and Elijah Abdullah did a did a basically did a mix of both. If you really think about it, you know, he he transcended colonial borders and he had the, those agricultural communities, but also in an in a burgeoning urban center, which was Kaulak. I hadn't really thought of it until we started talking about it that way. But it's like, you know, it's one of those Jamal Jalal Kamal type things, you know. Definitely, definitely. So now I want to talk about, and I think we might end here. Um, sure. This is the end of my questions anyway. And then if you have anything else to add um, that you feel is very important, can add it. Female scholarship within the West African Islamic. No, no, no. We can't. We can't just like do like a just a short addendum to the. T- we'll we'll open this door today, but then we'll we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it at more length another time. I spoke about this on the previous podcast, episode three of the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Um, it's something that I've written and presented a lecture on. You also have um done a, a, a IG live lecture on this as well. And so I wanted to talk about, we can open the door yep. and talk about the female scholarship within the West African tradition, because it's something, I wouldn't say unique to Islamic scholarship, definitely not, because half of our deen comes from Sayyidah Aisha, and we had, you know, Sayyidah Nafisa, the teacher of Imam Shafi'i, we had Fatima Fihriya, the, old establish, the establisher of the, one of the oldest universities in the world, etc. So we see these names, but... Tell us a bit about the key role female scholarship and female leadership plays within the West African tradition, because it's something that I've, see, I've never seen replicated in any other Muslim community, especially to the extent that it is now. I mean, for me, for example, the first person to teach me Quran and the first Dara, the first Islamic uh, school that I went to where I learned Alif Ba'atasa, was established by the daughter of Imam Sheikh Tijani Sise. She was my Quranic teacher. She taught me the alphabet. I memorized, um, you know, most of the first Jews with her before I continued. Um, when I was young, that was like 15 then. I had just taken Shahad a couple of years before. And she comes from a long line of all of her grandmothers, all of her aunties, etc. They're all masters of Quran. They're all teachers with male and female students. And that's something we see Sheikh Ahmed Bamba has in his community. That's something yep. we see 
Sheikh Ibrahim Yass has within his, his community. So tell us a bit about that and um, how important it is and how unique it is. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that the key to, the, to, to a concise answer is actually in focusing in on the first thing that you said, which is that it, it, this used to be part of the religion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's not in a lot of places. So it looks like it's unique. But just as with so many other things about Islam in West Africa, um, the reason why it looks unique is that other societies have abandoned what used to be Islam whereas West Africans have stuck with it, okay? Um, the truth is, is that like female teachers, female hadith transmitters, all of those things were central in early Islamic history. Otherwise, there is no Islam. Um, and that instead, what has emerged more recently is a very masculine, misogynistic form of Islam. And I, I talked about this in an IG Live with, um, with our sister Angelica Lindsay, um, because it's a really, really crucial point to understand. So I'll just repeat it in, a, in, a, um, you know, in more or less the same form here. Part of, of the modern Muslims' understanding of gender roles in Islam is an effect of colonization. Because Europeans are profoundly misogynistic and patriarchal societies when they colonize Muslim societies at the middle of the 19th century through the middle of the 20th. And so they don't take as interlocutors, as people that they communicate with women. They don't take women seriously. They're not thought of as being expert authorities in anything. Okay. So when um, they ask what are the contents of Sharia in a place like Egypt or Yemen or any other place so that it can be written down and become part of the way that the state governs things, okay? They only ask privileged elite men from what they think of as the superior racial or caste group in the society. And Mm -hmm. do you see? So the picture that they paint of what the contents of Islam are is one that reflects their dominance. And instead of presenting these things as subject to contestation and debate and differences of opinion, and that this female scholar wrote this opinion that, um, you know, contradicted X or Y that I'm saying, they leave all that out. (laughs) And they just say, um, this is what Islam looks like. I have control over women. I don't ever let them outside. I have control over children. All of these things, okay? And that becomes part of what defines Islam in the modern era. And, and this, this, so you'll forgive me, but I've, I'll just use the same example that I used before, which is that, because this is the way I teach it to my students. So if I say to you, I'm a boxer, you might ask me in return, are you any good at boxing? And then I'm gonna say to you, well, that depends. How much do you know about boxing? And then you tell me, well, I don't know anything about boxing. And then I say, well, in that case, I'm the heavyweight champion of the world. (laughs) So people that don't know anything about how a society functions are asking privileged, elite, Arabic-speaking men to give the accounts of what the contents of Islam are in that society. And they Mm -hmm. reinforce and standardize gender biases that are inherent in that group. That doesn't happen in West Africa because the state is so racist that it believes that black people are too dumb and biologically predisposed to not learn Islam and that somehow 
Islam is the property and proper expression of the Arab genius and that Africans are by nature animus. And therefore, there is no effort to standardize state Islam. Mm -hmm. And because there's no effort to standardize state Islam, people just keep doing what they were doing before, which was having women teach, having, <laughs> having women have spiritual <laughs> authority. Um, that's it. So, so what you have is not something that's so much unique as it is a survival of what used to be something that was much more, you know, widely spread. Now, within that, that means that you have women as teachers. It means that you have women as spiritual authorities, scholarly authorities, intellectual authorities, that really the only obstacles to, you know, women's scholarly or women's advancement in, in Islam is really just about ritual roles. Is that, is that there are certain ritual roles that traditional interpretations of Maliki fiqh preclude a woman from having. And that's basically she can't lead a prayer in mixed congregation of men. That's pretty much it. And so another thing, and I think maybe we'll end off here. Sure. There was a survey that said Senegal, or is it West Africa, is the most Sufi place on earth. Pew Research Center, yeah. That's, uh, the, the, they, they did poll that explain to us. Um, as the final question, how then did Tasawwuf manage to survive in West Africa and thrive in West Africa? And how was it manifested in West Africa in a way that it hasn't manifested anywhere else? And it compared to its survival in, in other places. Yeah. Um, so two things, the Wahhabi ideas and also the kind of state-sponsored um, Salafism that emerges in other parts of the Middle East, those are things that really diminish the influence of classically trained scholars. And so Sufism begins to decline in those places. Um, and because of the racist policies, ironically, of colonial states, influences from those other parts of the Muslim world were kept out of West Africa. So West Africa is protected from the spread of such ideas until really, like you said, the 60s, when all of a sudden people, you know, after independence, then these become more influential ideas. But it's not just that. What, what the, the real success of Sufism in West Africa actually comes from the people that you just mentioned, which is that they took these imaginative social reforms in the late 19th century, first half of the 20th century, that democratize access to Muslim identity to populations that had been previously excluded. Poor people, former slaves, they, they inverted social hierarchies so that the, so that, and, and they did it with Sufi movements. So that Sufi identity became something that was much more diffused through a broader population. It had previously been in a lot of places a kind of, because it's one of the more advanced spiritual science, or religious sciences, that it was something that was kind of one of the later disciplines studied. And it was oftentimes like a, the kind of crowning achievement in a lifetime of study for elite scholars. Like achievements in that field. So instead, what people like Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas are saying is that I can make marifa, I can make experiential knowledge, an unveiling of the divine essence, something that anyone can get access to. You don't have to have memorized Quran and many, many books of you know fiqh, although your teacher has to have done those things, <laughs> right? But you don't have to do those things. Um, if you follow this process, I can take you to where um, generations and generations of scholars have been striving to get. 
not only can I do it, but I promise you that if you f- apply these you know, principles, you'll get there. Um, and so that becomes something that um, reinforces the desire to have human claims for dignity acknowledged by previously dispossessed people. Somebody that was abused and called, you know, black or in Mauritanian society or casted in Senegalese society or slave in either society, right, now can become somebody who, um, with some knowledge of Quran and learning this advanced science of tasawwuf, can become somebody that's respected and honored and can become a teacher of others and become, can be accepted as a pillar of the community. In Ahmed Obama's Mori communities, people didn't ask what your father did for a living. If you were willing to go to the fields to work and to send your kids to the, to the Quran school and go to the mosque when it was time to pray, we're good. So that's why Sufism spreads there because it becomes a mass social movement that reaches the bottom end of society, starts there and grows. And nothing like that, to be honest, nothing like that had ever happened in the history of Islam. Sufism had never become the basis of all religious socialization for a mass of society, male, female, free, or slave. So it's not just that West Africa preserves something that was lost in other places, but it actually brings into being the fullest manifestation of what it really means to say that Ihsan is part of the religion and the religion cannot happen without it. Therefore, everyone has to have access to the science of Islam. And if you want to understand in a nutshell, like why I'm offering, you know, online courses in Sufi ideas about how you overcome the four principal enemies of the human soul, um, and there'll be, you know, other ones after that, that's the goal is to make that happen in our communities. Because if we actually make the, the sweetness of this uh, tradition, if we drop just a drop of it on the tongues of everybody, they're going to want more. <laughs> but we are not giving them the sweetness of this tradition. We're giving them its rigid, arbitrary rules, separate from its ethics, separate from its spirituality. And then we act like we're surprised when people don't want to be told what to do all the time without understanding why they're doing it and without having any kind of feeling of spiritual elevation from the practice. Play a song that people want to hear and they'll dance, man. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, that leads me to my final conclusion. Alhamdulillah, this has been a very fruitful discussion. We've spoken about how Islam entered West Africa. We've spoken about how it spread in West Africa. We've spoken about how it manifested in West Africa. We've spoken about the liberation movements that happened within, the influences excited upon the people in the region and the transformation that it brought about in the region. Um, The fact that it spread Ihsan, it spread worship of Allah, it spread establishment of the Sunnah of the Prophet. While allowing people to still maintain their culture, maintain their identities, maintain their traditions, in a beautiful way. And the fact that it allowed us to 
uh, establish all of the areas of the deen, not just the ritual aspect of Islam or the intellectual aspect of Iman, but the spiritual actualization and realization of Ihsan, worshipping if you can see him and knowing that if you cannot see him, he can see you. So my final statement, my final question, my final everything is, why is this relevant to us today? This is Sacred Footsteps, based in the UK. People are listening in from America, from Canada, from Singapore, from Pakistan. They're not West Africans. They're not, you know, from this tradition. Why is this tradition then important for us to know? Why is it important for us to realize, not just because, you know, Black Lives Matter and we want to know what the Black people are doing too, but how is this relevant for us as Muslims living in the West? And when I say living in the West, I'm not just talking about those who physically live in the West, but I feel like we live in a global monoculture where the West is everywhere. I'm here in Egypt and I have my OSN box and I watch American movies American TV shows, everything that's on HBO, I get it here in Cairo. And that's the way the world is now. The world is the West, I would say. The world is the global West. The global West is the monoculture that we've all signed up to. And so why is it relevant for us as Muslims in this 21st century um, global monoculture, Western global monoculture, to how is this Islam relevant to us? And how can it help us in our practice and our manifestation of the deen today? Learning from, as we opened up this talk, the stories of those who came before us in order to strengthen our hearts. Yes. So this global monoculture um, was founded on the enslavement of black people and the commoditization of black bodies. The exploitation of the African continent is the thing that establishes um, the capital that leads to European expansion. It's the thing that brings the new world into being. It's the thing that makes Europe, Europe. Um, pick up Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, and you will understand that there is no West without this original sin of the racial enslavement and exploitation of Black people. White supremacy and capitalist commodification are born in the same moment. This global monoculture that we all live in is bathed in our blood. Everything that we enjoy from it, um, our ancestors bled and died for. So if we do not struggle to rectify the wrongs of this society, then we will be condemned by our Lord for not having done so. The basic root problems of white supremacy which is understood as kibr in a Quranic sense, it's arrogance, it's Iblis's sin. And capitalist commodification of people is continuing to brutalize black people today and marginalize black people today. This has become a beast. It's a beast that started with us, in, with our exploitation, but now has tentacles in every human society. White supremacy, people, Zion, Palestinians think that they have a Zionism problem. Zionism is a branch of white supremacy. You've been fighting it for 60 years. We've been fighting it for 500. Muslims in America think they have an Islamophobia problem. 
but they don't have an Islamophobia problem because Trump says, ban the Muslims and build a wall in the same breath. He's trying to keep out brown people with each line. They don't care about your dean. You just ain't white. So the fundamental flaw that is baked into this global monoculture is that it was built on the death of black people and it continues to benefit from the death of black people. It is now impossible to take each one of the tentacles of that white supremacist capitalist monster out of every human society. Instead, strike at the heart of it. Strike at what it has done to black people and the whole beast will die. Everybody that is out in these streets now, Mexican-Americans here, white people here, people marching in Germany, people marching in London, people marching in Paris, solidarity in Asia, everybody seems to instinctively understand that if Black people get free, everybody gets free. (laughs) But we have not yet put that into a cosmic sense. We haven't put that into a sound understanding that racism is the original sin of Iblis. He claims pride over the species of Adam, and now he's been dividing us through this device for 500 years. He swam in our insides and out the backside and said, this thing is hollow. It will spend all its days trying to fill the emptiness inside it. If it's ever given dominion over me, that's how I'm going to break it. So it takes our desire for consumption, for excess, and causes us to value inanimate objects over people and human lives, which is what capitalism is. If we can return to a fitri understanding of this religion, to an understanding of this religion that is rooted in people's fitra, it is inherently a liberatory exercise. And by going back to the teachings of these jet black West African scholars who have been confronting this face of modernity for 500 years and improvising appropriately Islamic responses to it, then our hearts will be strengthened. Our hearts will be fortified and we we will have guidance on how to take action because we can do better. Mm -hmm. I'm going to end by reading this line from Masalik al-Janan from Ahmed Ubamba's Pathways of Paradise because it serves as a stand-in for everything that I just said, except he said it much better than me because he was a poet and I ain't no poet. (laughs) He said, um, Do not turn away from my work because of my lack of renown in this era, nor turn down my benefits because I am from among the blacks. The most honored servant with God is without a doubt the most reverent, and blackness of body signals neither weakness of mind nor lack of understanding. O wise one, do not abandon my words thinking that I do not practice what I preach. Do not give away God's favors by preferring only the ancients, for this breeds ignorance. It happens that a person of a recent era can know secrets unknown to the ancients. A shower may precede a deluge, but the advantage is with the deluge. You who doubt my words, don't forget the Hadith. My community is like the rain. He doesn't end the verse because he expects us all to know that the Prophet ﷺ says no one knows which drop is better, the first one to fall or the last. 
He, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said that there will emerge in the last days a generation that will be as good as the generation of my companions or better. Whether we know or whether we think that we're living in that time, whether we think that these plagues and pestilence and unrest and fire and famine and flood are signs of the last days or not, we know that the last days never been closer. And the people of divine remembrance have always been preparing as though they would find themselves in those days because you never know. And if you're not drilling for it, then you're not going to be prepared when this ain't a drill. This is the real thing. So this is about us getting free in our time by drawing on the resources of people who lit the way to a sound understanding of both inner freedom and freedom out there in the world. Alhamdulillah, Jazakallah, That was Models of Liberation in West African Islam with Dr. Rudolf Weather III, aka hashtag Dr. Bilal Speaks. <laughs> I want everyone to, inshallah, please, please, please research his YouTube lectures at, at butchware on instagram <laughs> at on instagram sign up to his classes huh? and look out for his new book coming out purchase the previous one and wait for the one coming inshallah so, thank you so much for your time for an amazing conversation um i'm sure we've taken away many many gems i know i have so i'm sure the people listening have as well and um, we'll be back, inshallah, with more and more and more for you here on Sacred Footsteps. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum assalamu wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.